Hello and welcome back to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name is Keir Milburn and today I'm joined by the usual, unusual crew, Nadia Idle. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the very ACFM topic of crowds. But before we get into that, I just need to explain where we've been. We've been on an ACFM hiatus for the last few months. It's been several months since we released our previous episode. We had a few changes to make, not least to ourselves. And so we've all been uh, on a spiritual journey of our own. I know Jeremy has spent the last few months in deep, deep meditation. Uh, he, He only survived, actually, because he managed to enter a state of suspended animation, lower his body temperature to just above freezing. Luckily, the plumbers come around and fix the heating, so Jeremy's back with us. Nadia, on the other hand, I know that she undertook a sacred ayahuasca vomiting ceremony in Bethnal Green, after which she entered the astral planes and journeyed far and wide to try to find herself. It took a while. She didn't like the first self she found. She went back, found another one. And this one's proving most satisfactory. So welcome back, Nadia, and her new self. And I myself have been studying at the feet of my own South American guru. I've spent several weeks in deep contemplation of Marcelo Bielsa's man-marking system. The appearance of chaos can mask a simple but powerful structure is the profound wisdom I brought back with me. Uh, Although Lisa playing Chelsea later, so that might turn out to be complete bullshit. Anyway, the point is, we're back. We're back, we're better, we're improved. This is Series 2 of ACFM, back on a monthly schedule, now of our own podcast feed. So get sharing and subscribing. And let's get back to the matter at hand. Okay, Nadia, crowds. Why are we talking about crowds at this time? I think we wanted to talk about crowds because basically we're not allowed to be in one at the moment with coronavirus, especially under lockdown two. And crowds are really important things if you're somebody who is on the left and goes to demonstrations. And I really miss it. I really, really miss being in a crowd of all sorts of crowds, Um, a crowd at a party, a crowd on the street, just being around other human beings. And I'm lucky enough to have um, just left the country for a bit to see my family. And it makes a big difference being around uh, people. And I didn't realize the effect that it had on me not being with people. Um, so that's why I'm particularly interested in it. But also um, because we've had a fantastic chat with H.A. Tamil Quran, um, the writer and journalist about crowds. And I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit about that later. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been really, really missing crowds. I mean, partly because I've been thinking about crowds for the, for this podcast. <laughs> but it's also come up quite a bit over the last week. I think it's a general, basically a general sort of point in the whole socially distanced thing that like it's the one thing we, we we can't do is get into those big big crowd situations you know those sort of crowds where you get lost in the crowd you get lost in crowd emotion do you know what i mean whether it's sports an event or at a gig a really good gig or going dancing something like that where you lose yourself in a crowd that just seems something you cannot do via zoom <laughs> i've been abs- i've been so jealous of all of the people who have been irresponsible in the sense of irresponsible in the spreading of the virus every time they kind of shut down another illegal rave somewhere i'm just like oh shit i just really wish i was there even though i know it's like the wrongest thing to do in terms of the virus it's just like i don't blame people at all for doing that i think you're completely right it tells us so much doesn't it this period about like what it is to be human basically although i've I've been sort of reflecting as well i I, I, basically i've been sort of like having this melancholic (laughs) searching through images of crowds and so forth to try to remind myself what it what it was like and i've been sort of thinking 
obviously this has been like this huge removal of crowd experience during COVID, but like that is sort of an acceleration of of a more general tendency in society where like those big sort of uncontrolled crowds become rarer and rarer. If you go to football, well, when we were allowed to have crowds at football, you know, it's a very different experience now than it was 20 years ago, perhaps 25 years ago, actually, perhaps even 30 years ago when there was, when there was, um, when you were allowed to stand at football grounds uh, rather than having, having all seating and C- CCTV, et cetera. And like the, the experience of like festivals and gigs, well, it depends what size gigs uh, and what kind of festivals. But if you go to sort of like a normal gig, you know, you're getting searched on the way in. It's just a completely different experience, I think, especially like festivals. Uh, you know, there's a whole events management sort of industry that's built up to sort of take away the sort of spontaneity and the, the ability to just, you know, to have anonymity and lose yourself in a crowd. Do you know what I mean? Crowds have become much more controlled. There's much less public space and in fact there has been a limited i think there might have been a decline in the in the number of like political crowds over the last sort of five to ten years i'm not sure about that actually i might go back on that statement i was going to ask you jeremy what you think also like what your specific experience is as the person i think who likes crowds least in a kind of personal experience are there any cloud crowds that you do like or do miss Obviously, like a big part of my life is organising parties and sort of creating crowds. And the crowd is the term we use for the people at the party when you're organising the party. And when you're DJing, you're always thinking about the relationship with the crowd. So I guess I'm sorry that we can't have parties. I don't really have this sense of sort of missing it that much. But that's partly because I really I spend more time normally around those kind of crowds than most people my age. So I still feel like I've got quite a big, <laughs> got a big bank of crowd experience to draw on. I think it's in, it is interesting that thought of Keir's that, that there's been there's been a decline of the political crowds anyway. But if we're, if we're talking about specifically like the you know the British political context, I mean that's partly because there was a move from kind of street activism to you know, working through the Labour Party, wasn't there? And NGOs, yeah. Well, the NGOs, I think the period, I always think of the period of street activism as being, and the period when everybody was working through NGOs is like two sides of the same coin, really. I mean, that was my experience anyway. And the party is like a different thing. I mean, you know, the, um, you know, the crowds of canvassers, in a way, were the sort of what replaced the, the crowds of... The crowds of street protests that lots of people have been nostalgic for on the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the 2010 to 2011 student protests in the UK. So, and in a way, you know, in a way that was an advance, that was always an advance from my point of view. It was always more, you know, it was some kind of advance to have lots of people knocking on doors, actually talking to people rather than just congregating in central London in the name of a cause most people in the country didn't really understand. But also, I, th- I guess for people like us three, that was that past five years when people have been doing so through the Labour Party. It, it does mark a break, doesn't it, from a, quite a long period. I mean, all my adult life, all Keir's adult life, all the time you've been in the UK, Nadia, basically sort of street protest, which involved deliberately, basically it for, it involved deliberately forming, you know, somewhat chaotic crowds in central London. It was just like the basic form of political activism for a lot of people, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. 
But then I think what the interesting thing there is then there was this terminology that came out as a kind of critique going, oh, no, it's yet another A to B march. And I think that's partly unfair, because even though I would definitely be a critic of the A to B march as this kind of like regulated way that people can do something that in theory doesn't have any effect, I think it does have an effect, because I think the very the very fact that a group of people are together is important in itself, even though it might not lead to the political change. And I think that, you know, that was the, the correct basis for, for criticizing it. But, but I want to be, I don't want to diminish the, the importance of the, the assembly, whether it's, you know, A to B or slightly chaotic. I think it's an interesting one, actually, because, well, there's a, a couple of things there. One of them is, so the, we're recording just after the 10th anniversary of the, of the Millbank demonstration, where, which was where a protest against the introduction of student fees ended up storming. Not the introduction of student fees, the increase of student fees. Ah, sorry, yes, of course. This is part of the mythology, the extremely middle-class mythology of that movement, that student, fee, student fees becoming too expensive for middle-class people wasn't the same Wasn't the same as them being introduced. You know? Yeah, yeah. The, the tripling of student fees, I do apologise. But like that experience where basically the Millbank Tower in London got smashed up, so there was like, you know, sort of street action in, in a sort of looser sense, um, big demonstrations, etc., being, you know, the, the, in some ways the focal point of politics. Like leaving that behind has been like not just in terms of, of the of, of sort of like an electoral focus and moving to the Labour Party, but also just, you yeah. know, militants these days. It's all about organising, but getting people organised rather than mobilised. And, you know, perhaps that previous Ear was like an era of which you mobilize people rather than organized people. Like, that is all a good thing. It's, it's just totally a good thing in my, in my, in my book. But yeah, I still think there might be a little bit of a, it might not just be COVID. It might also, this sort of longing for these sort of political crowds, perhaps it might also be, you know, this, this, this real desire at the moment to sort of restart things, to refound things, to restart things after a defeat. If we look at the US, which had a very similar sort of trajectory in that the Bernie Sanders movement was defeated roundly just after uh, the Corbyn movement was defeated roundly. But in the US, what happened was, you know, within a month, they had this, this really like the biggest social movement in history, the second Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that's had a different effect on, on, on helping that movement refound itself and reground itself. Whereas that hasn't happened in, in, in the left. Sorry, I am going on a rant now. Well, you're right. I, I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, if nothing, I mean, obviously BLM was about all kinds of things, but also it was partly a cathartic response to the kind of the frustration of the political class having shut down, you know, the possibility of yeah. the Bernie Sanders. And, and we haven't had that, although partly we haven't had that because the whole temporality was different because because we did we did capture the leadership of the party for a while. I thought a track we could play would be a very rare, relatively modern example of a band using a sort of full chorus is the Polyphonic Spree, who had that big hit, Follow the Day, nearly 20 years ago. Very nice, uplifting tune, which I used to play at parties until it got killed by being used on too many supermarket adverts. Light and day is more than you'll say Cause all my feelings are more You know, one reason why 
a lot of older music has a certain affective power for people that contemporary, a lot of most, very little contemporary music does. Very little contemporary music, almost no contemporary music is made by groups of musicians together in a studio. It's made on laptops or it's made by people who are kind of separated and it's made on, you know, it's, it's not actually made by crowds in a room. Whereas most music, you know, before sort of digitization, like before sometime in the 90s, was, was made by groups of, of people in a room together. And that does produce a really sort of different affect, I think. It does, it does produce something really different. Going back to that point, it's like what, what you were saying about Millbank 10 years. Is that there is nothing like it, like the experience of being in your, in your kind of political education. There is no amount of either organizing, which I agree with you tactically is, is there's a, there's an, it's an important move. Um, to organizing away from from just mobilizing for the sake of it. But the experience of being on the street in various forms, whether it's a protest or it's an occupation or whether it's a riot, you know, and those all might feel very different in different places in the world at different times, but but it's a very, very different thing. I mean, that's one of the things that I talk about with, with Eche. It's like no one can take that experience away from you. And when things come like the 10-year anniversary or whatever, it rekindles this real kind of spirit where some people have, you know, either forgotten themselves or, you know, they've, they've told themselves another story or a narrative about what happened. And you, you remember through the experience that you had with your feet in the street. And we, you know, all three of us have had that experience and, and loads of our listeners will have as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. Yeah. And I've always thought, well, there's two different things in a way to, to say about that. I think, I mean, one is just to reiterate what you said, that the sheer experience of being together on the streets, even if it doesn't achieve any immediate political objective. It's affectively, like at the level of how you feel, at the level of your body and your f- physical memory is really, really important, sort of empowering people. And it does, you know, it can stay with people for decades. So it's never a complete waste of time. There's also, when it, when we think about like conventional demonstrations, I always think you know, it was a point that was made to me like when I was, you know, my early teens and I was becoming sort of disillusioned with the apparent futility of like massive campaign for nuclear disarmament marches like i can't remember who it was said to me but somebody said well wouldn't it be even worse if we didn't though be even worse to live in a, in a society where there aren't like loads of people on the street protesting this stuff even if it doesn't stop it happening i think that's really true in some ways but i think it's also i, I hadn't expected us to be talking about this but there's an interesting question for me about these different cycles because look for me the whole cycle of you know the the anti-poll tax protest and then things like Reclaim the Streets in the 90s, right through to sort of Occupy around 2008, right through to Millbank was, I mean, it was mostly an experience of these things. I mean, to me, a lot of the time, I'll be honest, a lot of the time, I I wasn't convinced a lot of the time that those things weren't, well, for some people, they were clearly having this empowering effect that might have long-term positive consequences. I mean, a lot of the time, it did just seem like a sort of ritual of license. And it just seemed like it was just something that a certain kind of middle-class person who would end up going to work for an NGO and just becoming a sort of, you know, slightly to the left of David Miliband, like NGO person would do at some point in their life. And it didn't really seem like it was sort of going going anywhere. And then the thing about the Millbank protest is something did happen with that cohort is they tried, basically, they tried street protest, saw that it didn't get anywhere and said, right, we're going to do something else now. And they and they ended up kind of revive, you know, you know, driving the, the whole kind of political revival of the, of the British left. 
this is sort of what you've written about here, isn't it? But it's an interesting question, like what, yeah. what, what the shift was like. Because to me, to me, my experience of those student protests was just. I remember people getting all excited and people talking about kettling. You know, the police tactic of surrounding crowds to try and make them really uncomfortable for people, like it was this new thing that suddenly was being done. And, and to me, it was already like kind of old news. And I just, and at the time, I thought, yeah, here we go, like another another street protest movement. Like I'll support it, like I'll join in a bit, but it's not going to do anything. But somehow that cohort actually went through the process of it and sort of came out the other side far more politically mature in a way which honestly I would say most of the sort of act, street activists of our generation never did. I mean, why is that? Well, I mean, the first thing you'd have to say about that, though, is um, it didn't just happen in Britain, did it? Well, that's true. Yeah. I mean, at the same time as that was going on, or just before or after, um, I'm sure Nadia will talk before about Before Occupy, it. because Occupy is 2011, is, yeah. isn't it? It's October 2011 yeah, yeah. in the UK. But no, but so Nadia was at Turia Square. I'm sure she'll talk about that, which was the, the key point in the Arab Spring re- revolution in, in Egypt. And, and then Eche talks about being at the... Uh, uh, the 2013 protests at, at, at Tak is it Taksim? It's Taksim, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right in Turkey. Obviously, it's a couple of years later, uh, and in, you know, but but basically, I think that's still part of that 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 same sort of that same sort of cycle. And you know, then you have the Occupy movement, etc., which is sort of diff- a little bit different, but like a little bit similar. Well, I mean, th- 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 that's all. I mean, just to say one thing, and then sorry, go back to your point. Is is I think there's two things we're talking about here. One is like being on the street and like demonstrating, and the other one is the effect of the crowd. And I think that you know they overlap, but they're not exactly the same because you know let's not forget Iraq in terms of demonstrations. And that was a huge political moment for a lot of people. But in terms of its form on the street, it was very different to Millbank and very different to, you know, the the movement of the squares or whatever. Yeah. But but I think what Jeremy was bringing up, which is really interesting one, is there is these different, like there's a difference every now and then, one of these crowd experiences and nearly always crowd experiences they turn into something which like triggers something really new. I've talked about it before as moments of excess, which is this idea that I came up with my friends in the free association. And then it's in that, my generation left book. And I'm trying to just say that like, you have these sort of moments of real, like, you know, where something happens or some real innovation and that can spark, you know, a whole cycle or it can spark, you know, political generation, et cetera. But I'm like, and I think right through the nineties, I think the poll tax was one of those. And, and like, that was my formative moment. I might talk about that in a moment. But I see that as the end point of like a whole of the sort of like struggles of the eighties in, in in Britain. That, you know, there were people trying to do, do, do try, trying to spark crowds in certain ways to do with the anti criminal justice bill and and, and reclaim the streets and these movements came out. And then there was a, there was another sort of one of these moments of excess things around Seattle and then a series of demonstrations that year. But like, what happened was people tried to recreate that over the next five years. Just try to recreate same experience the guys don't like the rebel they don't like the rebel clown army yeah. so easy on them guys he was yeah how can we innovate let's add clowns to the yeah anyway but, Jeremy but i think not like, like one of the things that happened <laughs> was, clown costumes and cops like, <laughs> <laughs> extra clowns and extra cops that was the that was the main difference wasn't it <laughs> Just, uh, just want to interrogate the point about whether whether an occupation is a crowd, and how it relates to the crowd. This might be um, a point where you bring in the sort of Elias Canetti's distinction between an open crowd and a closed crowd. His thing of like an open crowd is like this sort of basically an uncontrolled crowd 
but basically just it wants to keep growing at all points do you know what i mean it's it's like a crowd which is which just wants to keep keep growing and will keep growing until until basically it it either falls apart or it or, or or it loses some sort of direction or something and that's one that's one sort of crowd and with the crowd we've got in our heads and there, but there are lots of like controlled crowds in which contra- crowd behavior is sort of limited in some way so like the football crowd there's a stadia there now it's all seating etc but you know it can only grow to a certain extent uh you know that's different to like an open crowd and so like an occupation would be something like that i think much more structured right um yeah i don't know i mean while you were thinking while you were just saying that i was thinking about it and i and, and i'm not sure and i'm also kind of taken by um H's point from the from the interview I did with her that that which I guess is a different plane of thinking about it, but that the, the crowd as a kind of body or an organ organism is also a self regulating form, and that doesn't ent- entirely line up with uh, what's his name Kinetti, um idea of of kind of an open crowd. I mean, I'm really interested in the crowd as a kind of form in itself and like, where does it start and where does it end? Not in a philosophical sense, but like, how does it become? And do people in the crowd all have to be aware of of why they're there, in a sense? And that would make it very different to an occupation because an occupation has more of a kind of like, we are all here for this one cause. I mean, Keir talked at the start of the recording about the increasing regulation of social space to make it impossible for spontaneous crowds to form in britain that's certainly true over the past few decades i mean it's interesting actually to think there is i mean there is a tradition within liberal political theory of what is called freedom of assembly historically there's a long tradition of trying to prevent people from assembling especially in cities because of the fear that if they do well it'll get out of control and they'll threaten property and they'll impose they'll impose their unruly will on people I mean, it's something I've written about and I've drawn on work other people have done, like, you know, like Elias Canetti's classic book, Crowds and Power. I mean, my favourite study of this is a book by just a British political philosophy scholar called uh, J.S. McClelland. And he wrote a book called The Crowd and the Mob. And he basically argues, in very, you know, well, I don't think he even argues, he just demonstrates very clearly that the whole history of political philosophy in the West basically begins with people saying, with Plato really saying, look, democracy is bad. And the reason democracy is bad is because democracy is about crowds and crowds are inherently irrational. So people get together, they start influencing each other, they're not thinking like rational beings, they become like animals, like they go get this group think. And therefore, it's bad. And that idea just persists all the way through. And the basic argument is, is a basic argument even being made in Plato is this, what crowds do is everybody in the, who, everyone who's a member of the crowd loses their capacity for reason. And so what happens is they become just like animals or children or like sort of these uncontrolled beings. And that makes them really susceptible to being like just following whatever some leader tells them you know, and just attacking enemies kind of wildly. It's the, the idea of the mob. That's two and a half thousand years ago. You saw exactly the same language being used by sort of you know, liberal commentators in the Guardian talk, talking about Jeremy Corbyn and his and, and, and his supporters. Exactly the same idea. The whole notion that Corbynism couldn't have any rational content, like it couldn't be a, a rational response to declining prospects for people in Britain. No, it, it had to be. It could only be conceptualised as a pathological personality cult. Yeah, the language people in the Labour Party, like MPs, used when they were when. 
that they saw themselves as being threatened by Labour Party members being given the right to vote on whether they wanted to have those people as their MPs or not. You know, was it all this language of this language of bullying, of intimidation? It's all this language which drips with just the fear of the imagined crowd, actually. So is that then something that's always in the is a tool that's in the arsenal of, you know, the right? Is this basically a sort of a, a piece that comes out every time basically there's a, a right wing or an establishment argument basically saying we don't like this person or what they're doing or what the followers are doing, that then these people must be part of a or are behaving like a rabble and a crowd? Or does it always work? I mean, when has it not worked? It doesn't work when enough people see themselves as part of that crowd and say, no, actually, what we're demanding is a voice. You know, it's a collective voice rather than, you know, and the, and what we do, and our demands are, are rational and are reasonable. But do you think that's the imagined crowd or do you do you think it is the, the literal crowd? So it, well, it's both. This is the thing. It's both. The reason Paris has those great, those famous big wide boulevards is because it was all redesigned in the, in the mid to late 19th century to make it impossible for the Paris mob to kind of organise itself politically and take control of the, of the city the way they did, you know, ultimately under the commune. I mean, the, the fear of the crowd, the fear of the working class crowd at the football ground, the fear of the festival, the, you know, the fear that you can't have all these hippies like just gathering at Stonehenge, you know, just because they want to. It, ultimately, it's all the same fear. It's the fear that, well, if you have to, if you let people gather together, whether symbolically... They'll take your stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're thinking about this collective chant uh, as a kind of sound of collectivity. For me, it's always, you know, Americans are gospel. It's the most developed kind of modern choral tradition, isn't it? It's the sound of people singing together. You know, when soul music first emerges, you know, Ray Charles codified soul music in the early 60s as supposedly a synthesis of rhythm and blues and gospel. Like it, it's seen by a lot of gospel aficionados as sort of sacrilegious because he's mixing this kind of secular physical like sexy music with the, the spiritual transcendence of gospel but gospel just because gospel carries on you know being a really key element right into disco and it's i mean disco basically is just gospel funk mixed with gospel gospel is the music of the hopeful crowd it is the sound of the crowd who are united and harmonious and hopeful and optimistic you know whether whether they're being optimistic about the life to come or optimistic about the possibility of a better future i suppose the the classic gospel disco tune is stand on the word the jew bear singers stand on the word it's like a loft tune which has this completely completely reactionary lyric actually it's a lyric telling people that you should just obey god unquestionably <laughs> like you shouldn't question the word of god but it becomes this absolute anthem for like these mostly like gay like black crowds in new york at the loft and at the paradise garage and it still is today because it's such a powerful aesthetic expression of kind of you know, sonic collectivity There was a huge explosion of crowd theory in the 19th century, right? As a direct response, more or less, to the, to the experience of the Paris Commune. And that is sort of, that, that is a, like a sort of this emergent liberal worldview in which the only thing that exists are individuals, right? 
trying to trying to to resolve itself with with this with the fact that like basically crowds exist and like you know you have crowd behavior how do you resolve those two things do you know what i mean then in that case you have to then you'd have to complicate your worldview but instead of doing that you just so like gustav le bon is one of is like the classic sort of it's a reactionary sort of account of crowds and his his account is really like 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 joe was just saying about basically when you're in a crowd yeah your mental faculties are lowered you're more susceptible and therefore, you can come under the behaviour of a crowd leader. You know, it's sort of like hypnotism is that is a thing in vogue at that time. So that's the sort of mechanism by which the crowd gets hypnotised by the crowd leader. But if you think about that, all of that is just a way of saying uh, what looks like the um, subjectivity, the collective subjectivity of a crowd, is actually just a reflection of the collective subjectivity of the leader. So it's like, all right, yeah. So it really is this emergent crowd experience, which doesn't fit our worldview is actually just, you know, the effect of very strong individuals who are leaders, you know what I mean? So we've, we've remained in the world of where there's only only individuals exist mm. and all these sorts of things. But, but have you not been hypnotised in a crowd? I mean, I do think, I mean, it's a, it's a side point, but I think it's it's like, I find the experience of a crowd hypnotic. Well, I think this is an interesting, this is an important point, isn't it? Because But I think it's a different thing, right? I think you, this is probably what you're going to say, Jeremy, I might be wrong, but it's, 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 the feeling is different to the mental faculty. Like I know who I am and what I'm doing, but it's, it's, it's absolutely like, like the most completing experience I have is being in a good crowd. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that the thing is that that, that kind of liberal imagination it recognises exactly the same phenomena that you would describe, that we would describe as people becoming empowered in the crowd. And then it re-describes them as psychotic, basically. Because to them it is. To them it is psychotic. The threat of the collective. The threat of the collective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's the threat of the collective. I would say one thing, though, and like what your, your description there really captures this. I mean, my argument in my book, Common Ground, is that well, that kind of liberal imagination, what it can't get to grips with is the fact that the crowd has a certain, and not just a crowd, but a person, does have a kind of rationality, but it's a rationality that can't be conceptualised in terms of just the individual. That It's about every every person is a complex multiplicity, and every crowd is a complex multiplicity. And those complex multiplicities are powerful to the extent that they are complex, and that's and multiple, that's what makes them creative. But to the, the liberal imagination, that is just terrifying and unthinkable. So you either have to imagine the crowd is just this sea of individuals who have nothing to do with each other, uh, but they're just sort of tied to the leader. And as soon as that cut, if you can cut that tie to the leader, they'll just disperse. You know, that's the way they imagine it. And at the same time, you can also only imagine that that crowd is always acting in a completely homogenous way. It's always following the leader. It's always what, what I call a meta-individual. The ideal form of this is fascism. That's partly why Le Bon, who's like, when he's writing in the late 19th century, he's this sort of grumpy liberal basically moaning about the, the, the onset of political democracy. But he gets a lot of cachet and people like Freud start taking him really seriously in the 20s and 30s because he seemed, they think he sort of predicted fascism. And he's understood the, the psychodynamics of fascism. That in fascism, people kind of lose their individual capacity for ethical behaviour and they just become part of this mass and they follow this leader and they, the whole thing is about oneness like ein Volk, ein Führer, ein Reich you know the one people one empire one leader 
I mean, all that is true. And I think, I mean, I, I think like from the left, you've always got to say, yeah, that can happen. I mean, there are fascist crowds, like crowds can become fascist. And partly this is something that, you know, Eche talks about in the interview, you know, there, she's talking about not liking rave, ex, you know, not liking rave and club experiences. And her description of them basically is just the classic Freudian explanation, actually, that in the crowd, you regress, you know, you become infantile, you know, you, re, you regress and then, and then you're subject to control. But for me, it's always like it's really important. It's it yeah. It, it's always and in my book, like I have a whole chapter. There's a whole chapter of my book called the non-fascist crowd. I always tell this story. I tell the story in the book, and it's a really good story about crowds. Which for me, for me, this was like the formative crowd experience. Actually, it was the mid eighties, and it was would no, it would have been like the late eighties. We probably would have been like about nineteen eighty eight, and I was just out for the day with mates in Liverpool, like normal. It's like you know going to record shops and stuff in central Liverpool. And in those days, it was just normal in Liverpool to see, you would see like sometimes up to four different like far left groups selling papers and magazines and stuff on the streets. It was completely normal. It was like a thing to do when we were bored on a Saturday afternoon. We'd just go see like who was selling papers and like if we, how much we could wind up the living Marxism people. And then so one day we just, you know, we're in the streets and we, we're just, we're coming out of a shop and we see these guys we see a group of guys stop in the street and start to get papers out of the bag. And we assume it's like some other, you know, far left group. And we're really shocked to see it's fascists. Like they're pulling the British National Party paper out of the, uh, out of the bags to sell. And so we just stop there. We just sort of stop still, like staring at them, sort of open mouth. But then suddenly it's not just us. Like the entire crowd of, basically the crowd of people just milling about on this shopping street, like a large number of people just stops and forms a circle around them, just like completely spontaneously. This circle just emerges. It just crystallizes out of the, out of the mass. And people, mostly people are just staring at them, like what the fuck are these fast doing in Liverpool? Like, well, they can't, you know, this isn't going to stand. And then a couple of people from the crowd, like these, you know, just sort of stepped forward and started haranguing them, like not really screaming, but but it was literally, you know, some old, quite old woman saying, you know, my husband fought in the war against the likes of you, get out. And then, and then a guy, you know, a guy in a, he was in one of those big, like red and black coats, which he, I can never, he could have been a postie or he could, or he could have been a bus driver. It was one or the other. And he's, and he's like steps forward and like wagging his finger, just saying, get out of here. Like we don't, we, we don't want you all here. And then, and they just put the bags away. They put the bags away and just drifted off. They just went, and then we just dispersed. The very fact that that can happen—that that is how a crowd can behave, like in a completely rational way, in a completely horizontal way. There was no leadership, really. There was just self-organized, spontaneous self-organization in order to see off the fascists, and then you know, and then kind of disperse. To me, that it's just fundamental like my, all, all my politics is predicated on the recognition that, that that's not necessarily what's going to happen that doesn't always happen but it can happen it seems to me from from that example it's it's as if what we want to believe or what we'd like to believe definitely what i believe in a similar way to you jeremy is that inside us as human beings there is that potential and it's it's it takes one person to act out that potential and for that one person to start, you have to have faith that others will follow or have the trust that there will not be danger to you in terms of some kind of level of confrontation like that. Or, you know, the first person who throws a bottle or the first person who makes a Molotov or the first person who mag wags a finger. And, and those are usually the images that we remember. But often those spark a whole, a very literal movement of other people towards something or away from something. And, and, it, and it, it then 
sort of nourishes that faith that you have that human beings can um, act collectively. It's the sort of spark that like turns a lot of people standing around into a crowd, isn't it? Basically, there's something that happens. So Kinetti talks about it as like um, there's just a moment of discharge and then all of a sudden this is a crowd that's formed. Uh, and so where he, when he describes crowd experience, he describes it very differently to, to Le Bon or even Freud. Like he's saying like what happens is you have this sort of like discharge in which everybody all of a sudden loses themselves as, as, as loses their sort of differences and becomes equal. They start to feel equal. Do you know what I mean? The, the crowd is like this discharge, which creates a feeling of equality, which fe- which creates a feeling of power. Absolutely. Well, it's that notion of the horizontal, which is really is really important. I mean, it's really you know, for, I mean, again in that, in that chapter of my book, it's I'm basically arguing against people in the psychoanalytic tradition, including contemporary people, to drawing on Freud, who who basically say, well, the only the social relations that make up the crowd are are all vertical, so they're all really about the each individual having a single relationship to the leader. And my argument has always been, no, that might be sometimes the dynamic, but there has to be a relation of equality. But there is a possibility of equality and solidarity. To me, in fact, that is what solidarity is. Solidarity is that egalitarian relation of kind of mutual empowerment, which is not dependent upon, upon leadership or shared identity. I think what, what the point James has been making for the last sort of 10 minutes is fascist crowds do, do exist, but they don't exhaust the possibility of crowds. But just that, recognising that means we have to think differently about what what is going on in crowds because like so basically freud's sort of freud's interpretation of le bon is sort of um he does it through this idea of the ego ideal basically where you know perhaps we'll project our ego ideal onto our fathers most of the time but in a sort of crowd situation we project you know our ego ideal onto the leader everybody's projecting it onto the leader projecting love onto the leader but the leader can't project it back he's one person so there's like a spillover of love that, that, that forms in the crowd. And so, like, you can recognise that there's a sort of feeling of love in the crowd, even in a fascist crowd. But the point that, that, that the fact that crowds can can form not just through leaders or not through leaders as individuals, you can have a spark. The best bit in, like, in crowds formed around music is, like, you know, it can be just be, you know, the dropping of a beat or, like, you know, just the reaching of a, of a particular sort of emotional resonance can just spark a whole crowd off to react in the same way and that cannot be the identification with an individual but surely also what you're saying is is you know true if only in our lived experience is none of none of that even though i really like it, it it's it's very neat as a theory in terms of what you just said like how the love is, does it can't resonate back so then people pass it on to other people like that it's, it, i can't identify with that any of that in 20 years of being in crowds like whatsoever and i don't think that comes well, from you want to hang around in more fascist crowds now dear it's funny you bring that up it's funny you bring that up because actually one point i wanted to make was something that Etche said that i thought was interesting and thought oh i'm not sure if i feel the same way about that is is when she said that she was a when you know when she was a journalist and she went to you know interview or see what was going on in this kind of right wing government mandated kind of basically I, I, I don't know if it was fascist or not, but it was a right-wing controlled, uh, in Canetti's words, closed crowd. And I thought, that's interesting. In, in that specific experience, I can see how you can be a crowd observer. 
right? Because she's a journalist. This is a thing that's happening outside. But then it, it did make me think, it's like, can you be an observer? Like I've heard this from like liberals and other people before saying, there was this demonstration happening or there was this occupation happening. And I went to look at it from the outside. And it's like, is that really a thing? I don't think you can be an in, an indifferent observer because you get caught up in the crowd affect, basically. But I, I, you know, you can. I've been in crowds where I feel really alienated from the crowd, and that the crowd behaviour makes me feel makes me go into myself. I feel it makes me feel alienated <laughs> and not part of that crowd. You know what I mean? It's a really uncomfortable feeling. I'm sure, right? I'll, that that sort of experience of a crowd being outside a crowd and alienated from a crowd. I'm sure that's a large part of you know that's the sort of experience that from which. You know, that's that sort of that nineteenth century crowd theory and, and you know, all of this stuff that goes on after that, you know, describing crowds as, as being formed by outside agitators, you know, that classic right wing tropes. I'm sure those are the sorts of experiences that produce them. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it's the experiences of being within a crowd and that feeling of equality within a crowd that provokes those sorts of paranoid interpretations. No, and it's also, it, I mean, it's a response, it's a reaction against the descri- various descriptions of, of the crowd as joyful, which you get right from, I mean, you get from Wordsworth talking about the the French Revolution and through to the, the people in the Paris Commune in particular, because they have to have a response to that. And their response to that is basically to say, oh, you're mad, you know, you're psychotic. I should say, to be fair to the psychoanalysts before people write in, like Freud, there's one line in, in where Freud says, it says, of course, there's loads of other kinds of crowds, and there might be some where people have sort of fraternal relations with each other. But he's clear he's not interested in in writing about those, so it doesn't develop a, a theory. It's interesting thinking about this this question of like, well, the types of like the types of crowds that we're sort of interested in, and the types of crowds that produce these sort of positive affects. Because you talked about like the sam, you know, I mean, you talked about and you talked to Lecce, um Nadia about. The samba crowds, in a, in a way, like you know, pl- playing playing the samba on the streets in the crowd and being one of the people playing it, it must is sort of it, it's sort of an ideal, typical example of this non-fascist crowd, isn't it? It's that part, the power of the collectivity that you experience is also it's just so transcendental. It's very powerful experience, both on an individual level, but also, you know, and this is the question I was asking to myself when I was speaking to Etche is like. Like which came first, the politics or the experience of being in the crowd? Because I just found it absolutely addictive. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that with your Saturday? It's it's so joyful and it's so powerful, and it also brings more people back, and it also sends the message that we can be on the most expensive roads on the Monopoly board, you know, in London, and like own the space, and it changes how you relate to public space and how you relate to other people in the country day to day, you know, year on, year on. It's it's definitely been a, a cornerstone of my politics. If I hadn't had those experiences, I don't think I would have had very much faith in people, especially the way how atomized, you know, life can be in the south of England. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about well, what are these what are the other types of crowd experience that induce those sorts of feelings and this is a point i mean this is a, a point that these these days people don't even remember this but like in the early 90s like for the first for most of the 90s really up until the late 90s it was a real ideological tenant of rave culture and, and club culture sort of post-rave club culture that you weren't supposed to treat the dj like a rock star 
I mean, the idea of this, this superstar DJ came along and got, got it imposed upon dance music culture as a way of renormalizing it, of bringing it back into the fold of like neoliberal capitalist culture and, and turning, you know, the dancing crowd into, you know, basically like a fascist crowd, like somebody, you know, just saw everybody standing in one direction looking at the DJ. The very first episode of the show we ever did, I talked about the Grateful Dead. I mean, the Grateful Dead sort of tour scene in the States, it was also the case, actually, like the, the, the people who were considered like the most radical, the most conscious of the sort of deadheads had this practice where they would all find a space on the on the in the crowd they'd find a space themselves and, and create a sort of dance floor space and not look at the band and just be looking at each other, just be dancing. Uh, it's traditional. If if Jeremy mentions the Grateful Dead, I have to talk about football. So um. no, I was about to say. I was about to say. I, I'm not the football guy, but also an early piece of academic writing. Where I was talking about some of this theory. I actually said. I said, look, let's think about football crowds. And if you're coming at it from this Freudian perspective, your assumption is, oh well, the, the football crowd. They're just a bunch of individuals who each have this imaginary, this sort of fantasy relationship with the football team, and they've actually got no relationship with each other. And that's fine if you're just talking about them as spectators. But the moment when that becomes an unsustainable understanding of what's actually going on in the psychodynamics of a football crowd is when the chant starts. Because the chant doesn't work like that. The chant works in a completely different way. And it demonstrates that, in fact, the football-watching crowd has some relationships to each other that can't be reduced to the kind of private relationships of each fan to the, 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 the fantasy of the team. Like the greatest example of, of the point Jeremy was making is this video um, that Dan Hancock was sharing uh, on Twitter yesterday. He, he's a journalist, uh, quite often talks about music, uh, and he's written a couple of articles about about crowds and about longing to be in a crowd during COVID. And, and like he says, the, the reason he started getting interested in this topic because he watched this video of um, 26,000 Hibs fans, Hibernian fans, singing a, a proclaimer song called Sunshine on, on Leith. There's 26,000 Hibs fans in this stadium. All the players have left. There's all the, all the opposing fans has left. There's only Hibs fans and a line of riot cops, basically. And they just sing this song. They're not singing it to anyone. They're singing it to themselves. They're not, it's, it's not being channeled through footballers. It's so good, isn't it? It's so it, good. It's almost impossible. I find it impossible to watch without tearing up. And in fact, Dan says, you know, even the police horses had tears in their eyes when people were singing it. And it's not really a chant. It's a complex song. And it's like a sorrowful sort of song. But it's about sunshine on leaf and leaves in Edinburgh and Hibernians in Edinburgh team, etc. And it, that, it, is, it is like that if we wanted to provide evidence for Jeremy's argument, you would present that video because the players aren't there. <laughs> they're just they, they've won the football this this cap that they've been after for years and they just they're just celebrating each other and it is incredibly emotional basically and god damn i'm missing football <laughs> for me hearing all of these examples and thinking about it for myself belonging is a massive part of this so in tahrir i felt like i belonged i knew where i was and 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 i felt completely comfortable there in a demonstration where i've played samba and there's been thousands of people around us it's like dissolving into 
not having the anxiety, you know, the self-consciousness has com- completely goes of like, who am I? Do I look right? Am I saying the right thing or whatever? And that that's when I felt most comfortable because it's a transcendental experience. So where I've not felt that and I've been jealous has been football. So, you know, if a crowd of, of uh, football uh, supporters get on a train or whatever, I have this mixture of feeling intimidated because they're usually like tanked up and it's like loads of men and they're uh, shouting and I just feel uncomfortable but also I'm jealous I'm like I wish I I wish I was in that because it looks like it's quite fun you know one a, a track we should definitely include is a bit of Pink Floyd early Pink Floyd track Fearless this is Pink Floyd like the London based you know upper middle class kind of hippie band of the time but they there's a track early track called Fearless and they they sample a bit of uh, the Liverpool crowd singing You'll Never Walk Alone which is is of course the best football song oh no that's going to make me cry just thinking about that 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 sound of the fo- of the of the Liverpool crowd, like singing and chanting, obviously has this real utopian sense of it, and that, that's something that's really there actually in the whole kind of music culture of the early seventies. That the high moment of kind of radical working class consciousness in Britain, like that moment of the early seventies, there is this kind of seeping of the aesthetics of the football chant into popular music. It's basically there in the sort of stomp of glam rock. I think actually is a sort of football chant vibe you know people like Slade are doing that and then the punks you know the the clash the, the early clash with their kind of sort of chanted harmonies are basically doing sort of football chants and then that becomes sort of explicit in sort of oi punk it's kind of explicitly you know at, at times violently sort of working class like substrand of punk in the late 70s and early 80s but so there's this but there's this, but that all, all the, the the aesthetics of the football chant seeps into music culture as a direct expression and celebration of the idea of working class solidarity at, at that time. I think it's really important. The the most familiar examples of people would be is it the Skids? Is it the the kids are united? Sham sixty nine, yeah, yeah, no, and the kids are united is the absolute classic, isn't it? Yeah, Sham sixty nine. One of the other bits about talking about crowds and groups, which I like, I like is a distinction that Sartre makes where he talks about different types of groups. One of them is like the serial group or the practical inert serial group, which is like where people are just gathered together, but they're not, they're, they ha- they're not in control of the purpose of why they're there. And so Sartre's example of a, of a, of a serial group or a practical inert group, uh, practical inert series is, is a bus queue, basically. Uh, people, are, people are at the bus queue. Uh, they're a group of people, but they may, they haven't decided to be there under their own. They're not in control of the reason why they're there. That's what I'm trying to say. Sartre calls it a group infusion. 
And then Guattari picks up this distinction where you are subjugated or subjected to somebody else's um, determinations in some way. So basically, why are people at the bus stop? at that particular point because you know perhaps they've got to go to work or perhaps they're you know they're, they've had a look at the, the the bus timetable and that t- bus timetable is created by somebody else so they're all there but of course that does not that's not the basis from which you can form an active group necessarily and so the group in, in infusion is a group um, which has got a purpose but the the point of that distinction is to make it to make an argument that you know the purpose the the, the good type of group if you want to put it that way is a group that is in control of the reason why it's gathered it's a self-causing group in some sort of way. So I think it's a useful distinction, this idea that, you know, what we're, what we are subjected to a lot is being formed as serial groups. And what we, what we enjoy from groups is groups infusion or, or the subject group. If you think about the football crowd, a lot of the time it can be a, a serial group. We're there because somebody else has decided we've paid money. The, the, all of these sort of reg- regulations are created by somebody else. And so like the chant, the conscious, creation of a particular type of crowd feeling is that like that movement of it of the football crowd from being a serial group or a, a practical in a series to a group infusion they're fusing themselves into an active group it sounds like you're saying fruit infusion fruit infusion <laughs> i could do the fruit infusion about that <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking a long time it's very difficult to talk about that. You know, we're, we're at the edge of... I mean, the reason, for example, Deleuze and Guattari are so difficult to read is partly because they are kind of at the edge of what language can enable us to talk about. There's something going on there, and there's something going on, you know, in the musical crowd at a moment when it, it's not the case... It, you know, the musical crowd, they've all come together. It's not like they are all making the music. You know, it's not like they are all really making decisions about what's happening next. And yet the musicians or the DJ is always in a feedback loop with them, is responding to them. And there is this general sense of a kind of heightening of capacity, a heightening of ability. And that stuff, that is really important. It's really important. That stuff is crucial to sort of, you know, I sometimes say, well, that's what democracy feels like. We talked about the A to B demo before. And the biggest A to B demo in history in Britain was the, the demo against the Iraq war, which, you know, which ultimately didn't prevent the Iraq war for, from happening. But the way I always describe it, telling younger people, is that I, I, I went from, travelled from Leytonstone into central London, and every person you saw on the street was heading in the same direction. Everybody was like heading to the tube station, then piling onto the tube to go down to London for this demonstration. Really incredible. And the date for that had been set at the European Social Forum like six months earlier. And both the European Social Forum and the demonstration seemed to be things which didn't really achieve anything. And yet I've always thought this is something that can't be proved, but... That global delegitimization of American imperialism, which was represented by those those that those worldwide demonstrations against the Iraq invasion, was part of the reason why America didn't feel able or capable of intervening in Latin America for a few years, which was part of the reason why Latin America was able to get all these you know, radical governments in the same period, in the early de- first decade of the 21st century. And it's not like nobody planned that. Nobody thought, right? What we'll have a do? What we'll do is like we'll all meet in we'll all meet in Florence, and we'll decide the, the date for a demo, and then we'll all have the demo, even which is supposed to be about the war. But the effect of that is it'll allow Chavez to form a government in Venezuela. But but then nonetheless, those effects did emerge from all that collective agency and all that collective behaviour in ways that you can't really identify. And so 
I'm saying all that just because the idea of the group infusion is still a little bit tied to this notion of sort of collective intentionality, which is really important. It is really important. It's important that we can form parties and make decisions and win elections and, and lead revolutions. But it's also really important to understand this dimension of what it means to be in a group, whether it's on the street or, in a, or on a dance floor or in a meeting, you know, it's no, nothing really does get properly apparently decided at that moment. And yet, real effects, like democratic effects, emerge from it. Ultimately, that's what, that's what that, that this feeling of equality is all about. You know, what, what you actually, what is life-changing about being in, in one of these crowds where you do feel equal to everybody else and you feel as though you're, you've, got, you've got a collective purpose is uh, reaffirming the constrained conception of human nature that we 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 often operate on is false. Do you know what I mean? In fact, it can like it can it can change us because it pulls us out of out of our constraints, the way that we think of ourselves as as limited people. It changes the democratic potential in society.